When you feel so tired but you can't sleep, stuck in rivers, and the tears come streaming down your face. When you lose something you can't replace. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's ASF Weekly Science Podcast. We are taking a summer break on next week and the next week's podcast. That would be the 8th and the 15th. So I hope you guys get a vacation too. I actually know many kids are going back to school soon, and I'm sorry about that. The summer is not over until Labor Day. This week, I want to describe two new studies to you that both look at anxiety. You know autistic people show a high rate of anxiety, and depending on the people it's studied and the age, it can be as high as 80%. Of all the mental health issues in autism, anxiety is at the top in terms of commonality and prevalence. But when does it start? And is there a place in the brain that it's located? Two new studies look at that, and I'm going to tell you what they said. The first question, when does it start and when is it triggered in development, can only and only be answered by looking at children in a longitudinal study that looks at as early in diagnosis as possible. Our friends in Canada are conducting a study called the Pathway Study, which follows preschool kids in Canada from just a few months after receiving an autism diagnosis in community and academic settings. Now, they're still following them, but they've already collected some interesting data about the events that occurred right around or right after diagnosis all the way to age 10. So they're sharing that with us. I'm sure you've heard me talk about the pathway studies before because it's been instrumental in understanding individual trajectories that occur. Do kids with an autism diagnosis stay stable in terms of severity? Do they change? Do autism symptoms get worse or better? What about language issues? What about adaptive behavior? And what does IQ have to do with it? This study has all answered these questions, and they work closely with parents. Remember, this is the study that published what parents thought were the best features of autism in their kids. Mental health issues, not just anxiety, plague a lot of kids and adults on the spectrum. This group of studies look at anxiety, but there are others. One source of anxiety, but probably not the only one, is an autism trait called insistence on sameness. Are anxiety and insistence on sameness related traits? Does one predict the other? This insistence on sameness is the need for sameness and really the hate of change. Autistic people tend to think about the same things over and over again. They want the same routine to be followed over and over again. This can be anything from wanting to go the same route home every day to having toys lined up in a specific way or having a specific bedtime ritual that needs to be followed exactly every day. You guys may have your own examples of insistence on sameness. Now by itself, it may not necessarily be impairing, but what is impairing is the huge wave of suffering and anxiety which can come as a result if the routine is not followed. The world is unpredictable. People have to be flexible. So when they were talking to these families at the start of the study, they asked questions about anxiety and insistence on sameness through different measures. They had cognitive and language abilities that were also collected so they could take that into account in the analysis.
They were about four years old at the start of the study, and they came back about every two years to tell the researchers how things were going. Now, by evaluating each individual child over and over again, they were able to say that the two things, anxiety and insistence on sameness, were associated and they were related to each other. So they looked at both of these things at each time point. So it first starts at age four and continues on to age 10, but the associations get less and less as they get older. Doesn't mean that anxiety gets less, doesn't mean that insistence on sameness gets better. It means that the associations between them less intense as the kids get older. But what comes first, the insistence on sameness or the anxiety? Well, in this study, it seems that insistence on sameness comes first and anxiety later. The fact that insistence on sameness or intolerance to uncertainty are related to anxiety, that's not novel. But the findings of this study are because it links the two in time. And by studying the same kids across time, they can specifically explain while some studies that may have used different designs at different ages showed some effects on the links while others were not able to link the two. Again, as I mentioned, this association peaked at age four, but got weaker by age eight. So if they looked at age 12 to 14 year olds, they may not have seen a link between insistence on sameness and anxiety. Again, it doesn't mean that kids do not have anxiety by age eight or older. It just means that the two things, insistence on sameness and anxiety, that link becomes weaker over time. I hope this makes sense. There are probably different associations with anxiety at age eight compared to, compared to age four. What this study also suggests is that there may be a common mechanism between them or shared predisposition. It should also heighten mental health concerns for those that show high levels of insistence on sameness at a diagnosis. These kids are likely to show anxiety and treatments for anxiety should be considered swiftly. So if there's an overlap between core autism symptoms like insistence on sameness and mental health issues like anxiety, is there a place in the brain that controls all this and is there overlap? Well, surprisingly, yes. I say surprisingly because I've been shouting so much that autism is complex. There are many different brain regions involved, but there is some specificity. There's specificity in areas that control language, emotional regulation, anxiety and executive functions. There are discrete parts of the brain where these things are regulated. They work in a complex way with other regions of the brain. So the brain is both highly specialized and also highly connected. So for years, across people, with or without autism, with or without other issues, the amygdala is an area of the brain that has been associated with anxiety. Even in people without autism, the link between the anxiety and the amygdala has been unclear. Sometimes it's associated with a larger amygdala, a smaller amygdala. Sometimes there's no relationship. Sometimes it's based on sex. Remember, anxiety is a common trait. As much as it's a common trait, though, across people, it's also important to understand the specific role of anxiety and autism as much as it's important to understand anxiety across the human condition. So the first question would be, one, in people with autism, are their amygdalas smaller or bigger than in other people? Well, the data has been scattered and it highly depends on age. Remember that study I talked about two years ago? It, it looked at the number of cells in the amygdala in people with and without autism. Early in life, there were too many. Then later in life, there weren't enough. 
So another longitudinal study on the link between anxiety and autism is needed. And luckily at UC Davis, this includes the size of the amygdala as well. Now, anxiety in autism is complex. For the purposes of this UC Davis study, they looked at two types of anxiety. The first is what the DSM would call anxiety. This can be generalized anxiety disorder, separation anxiety, specific phobia, and social phobia. However, there might be some features of anxiety that aren't specifically put in the DSM, which they call distinct anxiety. And these include things like fears related to social confusion, uncommon phobias like specific sounds or facial features, excessive worry related to losing access to materials related to circumscribed interests, and fears of change. So again, things that are maybe around insistence on sameness. So using a longitudinal design, they looked at the same autistic person across time, their features of anxiety, and their size of the amygdala. They used data from something called the Autism Phenome Project at UC Davis, which collects information at similar times in the Pathways study. They found that 61% met criteria for some sort of anxiety. Most of them had those traditional DSM anxieties, and then others had the distinct anxieties, and then some people had both. If 61% had anxiety, that means that 39% had no anxiety detected by these different measures, and therefore their amygdala sizes, since they had autism with no anxiety, were also important. It turns out those with DSM anxieties had the largest right amygdala values that stayed steady over time, meaning they grew because the brain does grow over time, but they had a similar rate of growth as you would expect. They stayed consistently high though. But those with distinct anxiety and autism had smaller amygdalas that grew at a smaller rate. They didn't see any differences in those with cognitive disabilities. And what's really interesting is that the amygdala was larger in those with DSM anxieties before three years of age, which is when clinical anxiety is diagnosed. So in this case, a large amygdala could be a predictor of anxiety in people with autism. Now, what I found interesting is the differences in the biology with those with the traditional DSM anxiety and those with distinct anxiety. Those with distinct anxiety had smaller volumes and slower development, while those with DSM anxiety and autism had larger size amygdalas. So the size of the amygdala may not predict all anxiety, but it may be able to predict DSM anxiety. The authors suggest that the larger amygdalas may represent traditional anxiety and the smaller amygdalas may be associated with anxiety more related to the autism phenotype. So how do we use amygdala size in explaining autism? Look at differences, not necessarily larger or smaller. The findings are important on their own and also critical because they explain the differences in other studies which varied on age and type of anxiety, which was not necessarily described elsewhere. So a longitudinal study can explain why there are so many differences in other studies, like in one study comparing just two-year-olds and another study comparing just 10-year-olds. I hope this has been helpful and I hope it's provided some new information about not only why other studies have been so variable, but now how we can do a better job of diagnosing and treating and helping those with anxiety in a more precise way. Thank you for listening this week. I'll miss you for the next couple of weeks, but talk, talk to, to you again in the middle of August. Light's